Hi, I'm Charlie Bolden. I'm a Marine, retired NASA administrator and astronaut, and I'm listening to the Mike Sappho podcast. Good morning, Major General. Hello there, Michael. How you doing? We're finally doing this, man. I truly appreciate you calling in. Well, it's good to talk to you. We were supposed to do this live while you were in New York City. Unfortunately, you got a little too busy for me. Scheduling <laughs> didn't cooperate. But what were you doing here in the Big Apple? Well, I had come up uh, that particular time because I serve on the board of the uh, Intrepid Museum Foundation. And uh, we were having one of our regular board meetings and looking at some of the incredible improvements that have been going on at the Intrepid Museum, particularly uh, discussing potential programs to increase their effectiveness as, a, as an informal education organization. Favorite food while you're here in the Big Apple? Oh, man, that's really hard. Um, we, we usually head to a good Italian restaurant. Sometimes we'll go into Hell's Kitchen or just try to find a, a good Italian restaurant. Now, Charles, I'm looking at you. You're 73 years old, and you look great. Is that because you didn't have any stressful or high-profile yeah. job in your career, so, you... well, <laughs> so first, it kept you looking good? <laughs> yeah, first of all, I, I appreciate your compliment. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, I, I try to work out every day. So I, I have now stopped running, and I've become a, a bicycle rider. So I, you know, I'm, fortunately, we live down in Mount Vernon, right by the George Washington Estate. So I'm three miles from the Mount Vernon Trail, which which stretches about 30 or so miles up into D.C. And, and beyond. And so I try to ride at least 20 miles a day on my bicycle and um, every day and, and do a little bit of very light weight work, but, but that's about it, very light. You know, while I was doing our research for our conversation, I, my God, you have a fascinating life, a fascinating life you live. You had a heck of a ride. Do you ever sit back and just take it all in and just see how blessed you are and some of the great things you did? Um, uh, I definitely sit back and, and take in how blessed I am. I generally, um, you know, I don't, I guess because I'm the one that's living it, I don't, I don't see everything that other people see. I, uh, all I see are the things that I haven't done yet that I want to get done while I'm still here. So I think we, you know, I tend to look at it from the inside out as one who's got all these things left to do, uh, whereas other people kind of look at it outside in at things that have been done. And I, I sometimes forget about the things that have been done. So, but that's before, okay. Before we talk about your life in space, I want to talk about your extremely illustrious career with the United States Marine Corps. You always knew you wanted to serve this country in one capacity or another? You know, I um, my father served in the Army in World War II, but never talked about it. He was a member of the greatest generation, and um, he used to take us to uh, Fort Jackson. We, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, so Fort Jackson was the basic training center for the Army back then. And my, my to-be wife, her father, who had served with my dad in World War II in the Army, he always took his – ironically, he always took his family – about 40 miles down to Sumter, South Carolina, to Shaw Air Force Base to see the, the Thunderbirds and see, uh, see the, the Flyboys on, on Armed Forces Weekend in May when we used to celebrate that here in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I saw a program on television called Men of Annapolis when I was in seventh grade, and I fell in love with the school, the campus and everything, and decided that's where I wanted to go to college um, with no prior knowledge about the Navy or Marine Corps. I just knew I wanted to go to that school, and, and it, it didn't occur to me. I, you know, I knew that I'd have to serve five years, but that didn't seem like a big deal because my dad had, had gone into the Army when he was drafted in 1940, 41, and he didn't come home until the war was over in 1945. So, so I figured, okay, I could, I could probably do something like that. And, and so that was my only interest in the military. Uh, but I did want to serve as, as my father and my uncles had done. But weren't you in the Naval Academy first, or was I wrong with that? Oh, no. I, I went to the Naval Academy. I, I fulfilled my dream of going to the Naval Academy. I decided I wanted to go to the Naval Academy when I was in seventh grade. That's what I was saying after I saw Men of Annapolis. And uh, that began one of my first battles in life was just trying to get an appointment to the Naval Academy because you have to um, – there, there are a number of – you have to have a, a congressional or a presidential slash vice presidential appointment to the Naval Academy. That's the way that the service academies access their students. You don't, students don't apply to the academy like you do a normal school. You actually 
applied to your, your members of Congress, your, your state senators, the vice president, or the president, if you're in one of those categories, Medal of, sons and daughters of Medal of Honor winners, uh, sons or daughters of active duty military, if you're in one of those categories, then you're eligible for a presidential appointment. And, and, um, and I was not. So I was really counting on, since Strom Thurmond was one of my state senators uh, at the time, and um, another senator was Olin D. Johnston. My congressional representative was Albert Watson. And um, I started writing when I was in ninth grade saying I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And um, they made it very clear that I was not going to get an appointment from any of them out of South Carolina. And I think Olin Johnston later on offered me an appointment to the Merchant Marine Academy, but, but I was not interested in that. But I had applied to uh, the vice president. So when President Kennedy became president, I started writing Lyndon Johnson, and, and I wrote him each year. And uh, he would always say, you know, write back, you're too early, write back when you're a senior. And my senior year, President Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, so I saw my, my hope of going to the Naval Academy go out the window since I, did, you know, I didn't know the, the incoming vice president. So I just wrote a letter to the president and explained to him what had happened and the fact that I knew I, I wasn't eligible for, for an appointment from him, but I needed help. And I didn't hear from him, but, but I did have a Navy recruiter come to my house within weeks. And President Johnson sent a retired federal judge, Judge Bennett, uh, from D.C., uh, sent him around the country to, to schools, mainly in the South, looking for qualified African-American and Hispanic young men because there were only boys and men at the Naval Acad at the service academies then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I managed to get an appointment from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois. So that's that was my trek to the Naval Academy. That's wild, isn't it? Uh, it happens more often than you'd think. Uh, my my uh, ironically, my my best man who is no longer living, Buddy Clark from Chicago, uh, Buddy's appointment actually came from uh, he came his appointment came through the through the Department of the Navy and um, I actually forgot who appointed him but but I got an appointment from his from his uh, representative and he got an appointment from another state. I read a lot of military books and like you just said they were going into looking for more Hispanic and African Americans. You dealt with a lot of racism early on though in the Naval Academy, didn't you? You know, it wasn't on the yard as much as it was in, in out in the local communities. Um, this was 1964 when I got there. Uh, Maryland is right on the Mason-Dixon line. And so at that time, Baltimore, Annapolis, Washington, D.C. were, you may as well be in the Deep South in many respects. It was not, it was not New York City where mm -hmm. at least the pretense was you could, you, you were just like anybody else and you could go wherever you wanted to go. There were places in and around Annapolis where we were not welcome. In fact, we could not, we could not go. We couldn't go to any of the pubs and bars where all of our classmates went, uh, you know, on the weekends um, because they wouldn't let us in. They were white only. And um, so we put up with that for, for most of the time until we kind of revolted in our senior year. But, uh, but it didn't do much good because they stayed segregated for the most part. And then you also fought in the Vietnam War, didn't you? I did. I was a, an A6 intruder pilot. Uh, I got there late. I, I didn't go over until seven, uh, June of 72. And I spent a year living and flying out of a place called Nam Pong, Thailand. The Marine Corps affectionately referred to it as the Rose Garden because it was in the middle of the, the Thai jungle on a Royal Thai training base. Um, and I mean, we were literally in the middle of the jungle. The Navy Seabees had gone in and uh, cleared off a patch of jungle, uh, gotten rid of the cobras and put some, you know, concertina wire around to, to keep different people out and uh, pitch tents and, and put in a few what we call water buffaloes, big rubberized uh, water bass. I, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Just a, a giant water thing like you would see on a ranch somewhere for the cattle. And that, that's where we got our water to sponge bath and until they, you know, they put in sort of a makeshift shower, but everything was out in the open. There was no, uh, there, there, there were no quarters, so to speak, back then for the first six months. And then they put, um, they built some what we call Southeast Asia huts, and they were wood framed 
buildings and they put canvas over the top for a roof. And we kept that for the next three months. And then for my final three months, we got, we got it. We moved into luxurious quarters because they replaced the canvas roofs with tin. <laughs> and, uh, That's so that, all always, living. <laughs> that, that was great because we, my squadron being an A6 squadron flew mostly at night. And, uh, when we came back in in the morning, we would, we would always, uh, welcome our F4 buddies who were, who were only flying in the daytime. We'd welcome them to the daylight by throwing rocks on their tin roof to wake them up. <laughs> we, we had lots of fun. We were kids, you know, we were kids in combat. Now, Charles, you're an African-American male coming back from Vietnam, which was extremely unpopular also. Were you just searching for adversity here to fight? You just wanted no, to conquer I, every I, hurdle? I actually, and, and I was very fortunate in, um, in that instead of sending me back to somewhere like Cherry Point, North Carolina, where I come from, uh, the Marine Corps and its infinite wisdom, um, after going back and forth among Columbia, South Carolina, San Francisco, and L.A., they, they sent me to, to Los Angeles for recruiting duty. And so I went from Vietnam, uh, you know, I, I brought my wife and my one-year-old, two-year-old son because we celebrated his birthday in Japan. But I brought them over for 30 days of, uh, I didn't take any, any R&R, any rest and relaxation during my year. I saved up all my leave time so that I could bring my wife, Jackie, and our son, Che, over. And, and we had an opportunity to visit with friends who uh, were up in Misawa, Japan, and, and, and we visited Tokyo and a lot of different places that they would have never visited. So we spent a month there, and then I came back to Los Angeles. We bought our first home in Carson, California, and, uh, and our daughter was born during the five years that we were assigned out there. So I did two years of recruiting duty in L.A., mainly focused on officer recruiting uh, as what was called an officer selection officer. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, it turned out that Los Angeles was like uh, heaven for a recruiter. It it was heavily because of its heavy minority population. Uh, when I went into Compton and South Central LA, or I went into East LA, which was heavily Hispanic, um, it, it was like you were you were a big hero because everybody in almost every family or every family had somebody who served in the military and a large number of them in the Los Angeles area were Marines. So um, we had a, you know, we had a great time recruiting in Los Angeles. My friends up the, up the road in San Francisco uh, had just the opposite. They were pummeled with paint and powder and everything when they visited campuses. Uh, students would, you know, at Berkeley and other places would, would uh, put the cars on blocks and take the wheels off. And that was just day-to-day -day activity for them. We were living like kings down in, in L.A. We were the, L.A. turned out to be the go-to place for the Marine Corps when it came to officer accessions as well as enlisted recruiting. So when other parts of the country couldn't make their quotas, they sent us a note that said, hey, we need, we need two more of this kind of person or three more of that kind of person, and we could generally get it for them. And I know you rose all the way up to the rank of major general. Yeah. Where's the where's this happen? The transition from the military to NASA, like how and why did that happen? Because you can put a period yeah. at the end of your military career, and that's a great story. Yet you have a whole nother chapter. Yeah, I actually uh, it was in the middle of my Marine Corps career. It, it, it was my Marine Corps career was supposed to have ended um, after my tour in Southern California. I did, like I said, I did two years of recruiting, and then three years down at the Marine Corps Air Station in El Toro in Orange County. And that's no longer there. It, we, we closed it and moved the Marine Corps down to Miramar in San Diego. But um, I, you know, I, while I was going through flight school, I had, I had learned about this place called the Navy's Test Pilot School in Patuxent River, Maryland, not very far from D.C., about an hour and a half down, down in, South, in uh, South, South St. Mary's County, Maryland, way down in the sticks. And when I went there in 1978, it was tobacco country. I mean, the whole state of Maryland was was a tobacco haven back then. So you drove through nothing but miles and miles of tobacco fields to get to Patuxent River. And um, but I had learned about test pilots and test pilot school while I was going through flight training. And um, and I had a one of my primary flight instructors when I was in my final squadron in Kingsville, Texas, was a, a Marine Corps major by the name of Pete Thiel, who was a, a, a Navy Navy naval test pilot. 
And he ended up uh, eventually being the program manager for the F-18 Hornet uh, when the Marine Corps and the Navy decided they were going to transition to that aircraft. So he became, he and his family became very good friends with my family and I. And um, he always talked with me when we were flying about being a test pilot, about how challenging it was. And, you know, it wasn't glamorous the way the movies told you. Um, it was risky, but, but he, how much he enjoyed it. And so I decided before I even was a qualified pilot that I wanted to be a test pilot. And so after I got my wings, I started applying to the Marine Corps for assignment to test pilot school. And I did every year for twice a year for about six years. And uh, finally, um, I got accepted to test pilot school. And, um, and, and I left California with my family in tow and we drove across country to Pax River. And I went through a year of training as a, to be a test pilot spent a year there and it was while I was a test pilot that um, NASA selected its first group of space shuttle astronauts. I was aware of what NASA was, what it did. I knew about astronauts, but I had no desire to be one that did not, you know, I was perfectly happy being a test pilot. That was risky enough for me. And um, we had a reunion my, in between my, my first and second year there, uh, test pilot school reunion. And among the people who came up from Houston, Texas, out of the astronaut office uh, was a group of the brand new selected uh, NASA space shuttle astronauts. And each of them came up in a, the, the pilots came up in the sleek looking NASA white and blue <laughs> T-38s, supersonic jets. And, and out of the back of one of them emerged this short black guy that I, I came to know and became my best friend. Uh, the late, great Dr. Ron McNair. And uh, I was startled, first of all. You know, I knew that there, they had selected three blacks among the first group of space shuttle astronauts because it was a big class. They had selected the first women, six of them, and the first African-Americans, and there were three of them, two pilots and, uh, well, two mission specialists and one pilot. But when they, when they got out of the airplanes, one of the little guys getting out of the backseat of an airplane was Ron McNair. And uh, Ron was wearing these big glasses. He was a, <laughs> he was a very professorial looking guy. And um, I knew of him, but I did not know him. I had learned that Ron grew up in Lake City, South Carolina, about 42 miles from me, a very small rural city, uh, not, not far from Sumter and not far from Florence, South Carolina. But there was nothing in Lake City. And, um, you know, it was a big as, as we used to say, it was big as a minute. But Ron... <laughs> Uh, had always aspired to be an astronaut, even before there was any space show. Ron, Ron wanted to be an astronaut. And Ron, everything he did in life was in preparation for becoming an astronaut. His school, Carver High School in Lake City, which was segregated, just like mine in Columbia, uh, his mom was a teacher. Um, and Ron, because his school didn't offer uh, chemist calculus and, and, um, and physics, he went to the local library to check out two books, one on calculus and one on physics to teach himself. And uh, as you would imagine, the library was segregated. And so the librarian told him he couldn't be in there. Wow. And Ron said, I'll leave as soon as I get these two books. And the librarian wouldn't check the books out. And Ron sat down. So, you know, an early sit-in. Uh, Ron was a high school kid. And, uh, but Lake City was so small that everybody knew each other. So the, the librarian finally called the police chief. And the police chief came down and said, Ron, you know, you, you, you got you to gotta get out. You can't get the books and everything. And so Ron refused to leave. And the police chief called Ron's mom at the school and, and said, you know, Mrs. McNair, I need your help. Ron is over here and he's sitting in, down in the library and he won't leave. And I, I don't want to arrest him, but, but he's got to leave. And so Mrs. McNair rushed over to the school and um, she tried to talk Ron into leaving. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. Till I get these books. And the police chief finally uh, figured, okay, this is not working. Tell you what I'll do. So he told the librarian, I'll check the two books out and, uh, you know, I'll take responsibility for him. And so he, he checked the books out. They walked outside. He gave them to Ron and said, look, you, you use these as you need. <laughs> and when you finish, <laughs> bring them back to me and I'll take them back. And um, Ron taught himself chemistry, taught himself calculus and physics. And uh, went on to North Carolina and T, graduated with honors in physics, and uh, got a request, got an offer to come to MIT and, and study for a PhD. Did not want to do it because he didn't think he 
he didn't think he could handle MIT and, and a professor who became his advisor actually came down to, to North Carolina and talked to him and said, hey, look, you should understand if you're a, you know, if you're an honor student at A&T, you're a piece of cake for you at MIT. And Ron decided, okay, what the heck, uh, they're paying my way. So he went to MIT and, and he earned his doctorate in, uh, in laser physics and became one of the world's foremost laser physicists. Uh, went to work out in California, and I forget who it was, but, you know, as a, as a physicist, as a laser physicist out there and uh, making his mark. And then he applied for the space shuttle program and was accepted in the first group. And uh, we talked the whole weekend about, about his exploits and everything and how he had, how, what had happened to him growing up. And uh, I was inspired, but still not interested in the astronaut program. And so when he got ready to go get in his T-38 and go back to Houston, he just happened to ask me, he said, are you going to apply for the program? And I said, not on your life. And he looked at me real strange as if to say, what kind of fool are you? I just finished telling you about all this, all this stuff we're doing and how much fun it is. And, and I said, uh, he, he said, why not? I said, they never picked me. And he looked at me really strange then. And he said, you know, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. He said, how do you know if you don't ask? And, and, and what happened was instantly he reduced me to like an inch tall because I was incredibly embarrassed. My mom and dad were school teachers and all they had told me growing up was I can do anything I wanted to do if I was willing to apply myself and study and work real hard. My father was my high school football coach and he had ingrained in me. I mean, he, he groomed state championship football teams with undersized teams all his life. And, and he had a saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. And, and I had forgotten all that. And, and Ron reminded me rudely by saying, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've heard. And so when he left and went back to Houston, I, I went home and I told my wife that I was going to apply for the shuttle program, you know, knowing that there was not a snowball's chance in hell that I'd get accepted. And so I filled out my application and uh, uh, got it in. And, and as a matter of fact, my boss helped to finish it out because my father passed right as I was finishing up the application and, and my boss mailed it in for me. And um, I went back home and, and took care of burying my dad and everything and came back. Did not hear a thing from NASA um, for a while and then got, a, got word from the Marine Corps that they had liked my application and had forwarded it on to NASA for consideration. And then in February, I got an invitation to come down to Houston and interview for the program, I did, and I told my wife, you know, I'm going down here and I'm going to have a ball, and and I I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell of my being selected, and I did. I went to Houston, I had a really great time, met everybody in the astronaut office, came back and told my wife, you know, that would be absolutely spectacular, but but man, the people I met have degrees up and down their arm, and they are really smart, and there's no way in the world I'm going to get into that, and so we set about thinking about what we're going to do the rest of our Marine Corps career. Um, which, by the way, as I was saying, when I left to go to test pilot school, that essentially theoretically ended my Marine Corps career because usually people didn't come back. And so um, months passed, and in May of 1978, my it, it actually was 1980, my wife's birthday, um, I got a call as I was getting ready to walk out to my airplane, and it was from Houston, uh, a gentleman by the name of George Abbey who, who ran all the astronauts and all the airplanes, and he said, hey, um, you still interested in coming to Houston? I said, yes, sir. He said, um, okay, then that's good because you, you've been selected in this next group of space shuttle astronauts. And wow. I kind of went berserk and um, he said, but now you can't tell anybody until we get, you know, we get everybody notified and we get the announcement out. So you can let your wife know when you go home, but please don't tell anybody else. So I was, since I was on my way out to fly a test hop, I couldn't, say, okay, I'm not going to go fly. So I went out, got my airplane, and, and it was one of the best flights I ever had. And <laughs> ironically, it was, a, it was a flight in an A-7, which is an a single-seat attack aircraft. And my mission that day was to just do what we call throttle jams. And you, you just jam the throttle full forward and full aft. So you're, you're going to maximum power to just before you shut it down over and over and over again for about an hour and a half uh, to see if the engine will fail. And... Um, in a single in a single engine airplane, so that was that was my mission that day, and I did it joyfully because I figured I 
you know, I was, I was bulletproof and came back and landed and, and went home and told my wife what had happened. And, uh, it was several weeks later when the announcement came out and, uh, and the first of July, we, we reported for duty at, at the Johnson space center. And I stayed in the astronaut office for 14 years in the middle of my Marine Corps career. I was, I was on loan to NASA from the Marine Corps. And I continued to be considered for promotion and get promoted along with my contemporaries. And after my fourth space shuttle mission, our daughter graduated from high school. So that was the baby. So there was, you know, there was nothing to keep us in Houston because I, you know, the family and I had decided that my fourth flight would be my final one. And, and there was nothing that I wanted to stay around for after that. So, um, so I, I had gotten a call asking if I wanted to go to the Naval Academy to serve on the staff there as a, the, what was equivalent of the vice dean of students, the deputy commandant of midshipmen. And uh, so I communicated with the commandant of the Marine Corps. He said, that'd be great if they pick you. And so I accepted and we struck back to Maryland again. And I served a year as the deputy commandant of midshipmen. So that put me back in the <laughs> operating forces of the Marine Corps. So I had gone from Marine Corps to NASA back to the Marine Corps. And I stayed uh, on active duty for another nine years and um, retired in 2003 and uh, went back to Houston just to enjoy life and be a consultant and do as little work as possible. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I did some speaking and some other kinds of stuff. And six years later in, in 2009, I kept getting these calls from Washington to come and talk to different people around President Obama, you mm -hmm. know, who wanted to pick my brain about NASA and and things that the president should think about. And I went up, talked to the science advisor for one day and then came back. And later they said, hey, can you come back? And I, I said, I've already been up there and talked about this. They said, well, the president would like to talk to you. He, he wants to pick your brain too. So I went up and uh, stayed a couple of days in Washington, had about a 25 minute meeting with the president in, uh, off the Oval Office and uh, he and one other person. And he spent that, period of time, he was doing most of the talking, telling me about his vision for NASA and asking every once in a while what I thought. And uh, we agreed on some things, disagreed on others, but but we both agreed about NASA's ability to, to be a beacon, you know, for people around the world and, and, and a, a way to inspire young people to want to do great things. And uh, he talked about growing up in Hawaii with his grandparents and his grandfather would take him down on his shoulders to watch the Apollo astronauts come home and he wanted American kids to be able to enjoy that kind of excitement again. He wanted, wanted NASA to go, you know, beyond low earth orbit, wanted us to go beyond the moon, go to Mars. And, and, uh, and that was all he said. He didn't, didn't say anything about NASA administrator, uh, just, just talk. And so I went home, thank, he thanked me, I thanked him. And I went back high as a kite and told my wife that was incredible. Yeah, hanging out with the president. Hanging out with President Obama. And uh, she had advised me not to go, by the way, because she said, you know, he's going to ask you to do something. You don't know how to say no. <laughs> especially especially to the president of the United yeah. States. And neither of us was excited about going back to D.C. So so a, a couple of weeks passed, and then I got another call, and they, it was the presidential personnel office, and they said, hey, can you come back to Washington again? And I said, for what? And they said, well, the president's decided he wants to nominate you to be the the NASA administrator, and so we need to kind of take you through some orientation and take you over to the Hill to meet members of Congress, because you you gotta you gotta go through a hearing to be uh, you know confirmed by the by the Senate. And so I I said I can't answer right now. I need to talk to my family. So we gathered the, the family together, my son by phone, because he was at the Naval Academy. As a matter of fact, uh, well, he wasn't at the Naval Academy. He was already. At, in the Marine Corps, he was flying airplanes. And um, so everybody agreed that, that I should at least give it a shot. And so I went back to Washington and stayed there for several weeks going through all the prep and, and finally had my hearing. And I tell people, we, I had the last civil hearing of the confirmation hearing of the Obama administration. My hearing along with my deputy, they saw both of us at the same time. And we had about a, an hour, two hour hearing, very con collegial uh, that morning, the Thursday, the 16th of July. 
we were voice voted out of the committee that afternoon, unanimous vote, and that night, voice voted unanimously on the floor of the Senate. And the next morning, I was at NASA headquarters being sworn in and taking my seat as the NASA administrator. So that, you know, the, the process of confirmation took, took a day. Um, <laughs> after that, uh, all hell broke loose, and Mitch McConnell in the Senate decided that the president would no longer get most things that he wanted, and the battle was on for the next eight years. So, so I served as President Obama's NASA administrator for, his, for both of his terms. Now and, I want to could, retired from that, and that, that brought me to where I am now. I want to backtrack a little bit because a few questions about NASA I have. When you finished NASA school, how long was the wait until you got into space? Oh, when I finished, when I got down there and began to train as an astronaut. Yes. Well, you're in line, and uh, and they, as a general rule, they try to fly everybody in one class before they fly any of the younger guys. So, so I waited six years. My, I checked in in June of July first of. Of 1980, and we went through ups and downs. We didn't, we we weren't flying the shuttle when I got there. We were supposed to have been flying in 1978, and we had all kinds of problems just getting the shuttle ready to fly. We flew the first flight in uh, April of '81, and uh, and then we, I flew my first flight in in January of 1986. It it had been scheduled to fly in uh, the previous June, June of '85. And, uh, and about that time, I'd actually had a change in crew and mission. We had Krista McAuliffe and Greg Jarvis on our crew, and we were the teacher in space flight. And uh, about six months out, uh, the NASA administrator had invited members of Congress to go to space, one from the Senate and one from the House. And so we had already flown Senator Jake Garn um, the year before. So Congressman Bill Nelson, who, who recently was defeated in his bid to 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 resume his seat as the senator, senior senator from Florida. But Bill Nelson came as the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Space Science and Technology. And he trained with us for six months and flew as a crew member, which was awesome. He was really, he was really, I mean, really diligent and worked really hard and he became a very good friend. But we flew our mission and landed and 10 days later, we lost Challenger and Ron McNair. Oh. And uh, so we were grounded for almost three years after my first flight, but I, um, I ended up being sent over to take over the safety division at the Johnson Space Center. And so I was responsible for safety as we tried to get ready to return to flight. And, and then once that was done, um, I went up to, uh, I, I got assigned, I was already assigned to my second flight, which was the Hubble Space Telescope mission. I had been assigned to that actually prior to flying my first flight. So we went back into training, flew that flight in 1990, and, um, and then flew a third flight in 1992, my fir first time I was a commander of a shuttle mission, and then went to Washington for a year to be the assistant deputy administrator of the agency, and um, sort of the senior civil servant, and spent a year there. Most of the time was spent with Congress trying to, you know, get them to agree to fund NASA programs, mainly a, a space station. And then I got a, I got offered one more flight and I went back to Houston and, and commanded what was my fourth and final flight. And that was the first joint Russian-American mission where we had two cosmonauts who moved to Houston with their families and trained with us for two years. And I ended up flying with a, a guy, a super guy named Sergei Krikalov, who at the time was the most experienced person in space flight. He had, he had flown a little bit more than a year of his life in space when he flew with us on the shuttle. So he became the first Russian to fly on the space shuttle. He was a full-fledged crew member. He wasn't a passenger at all. He, he had duties like everybody else. And uh, so that flight went so well that we determined we would send in succession six American astronauts to Russia to train and fly on their space station Mir. Uh, and then we began to form this consortium to what became the International Space Station. Now, Charles, you, you, you mentioned your last trip. Weren't you close to 50 years old on that flight? How'd your body when handle that? When I flew that? my last flight, that was 94, um, so 46 to 94. Yeah, I'd have been 48. And, I mean, you know, flying in space, my uh, John Glenn flew his final flight in the shuttle when he was 77, and his crew said <laughs> he was like an animal. 
Um, most of my roommates when I got to Houston were guys who had been selected for the Apollo program and never got to fly because the program was terminated before their flights rolled around. And so I had uh, one roommate, Bill Thornton, who flew at the age of 66, his first flight. We had quite a few 60-some-odd-year-olds who flew on their early flights of shuttle just because they had been there since the Apollo era and NASA wanted to get them flown. I always like to ask, you know, these different things, but the first time when you're in space, I know you're prepared for everything, every technical thing, every nut, yeah. every bolt. Take me through the first time, because they never tell you how Earth looks, our beautiful planet. Take me through the first time you look out that window, because everything's said, every calculation, you look out that window and you see Earth. Yeah, you probably heard somebody talk about it before because you hit the nail on the head. You are infinitely prepared for the flight, technically. Uh, I, you know, my training team and our flight control team could not have gotten us better prepared for the flight. There was nothing uh, that surprised us that happened. Uh, we were ready for all contingencies to include really bad ones. Um, what I wasn't ready for was the emotional impact of getting to space in eight and a half minutes, you know, going from laying on your back on the launch <laughs> pad to, to getting shaken like, uh, you know, like the vehicle was going to come apart. Uh, for the first two minutes and then experiencing this really smooth acceleration for the next six and a half minutes. And after eight and a half minutes, you're going 17,500 miles an hour and you're in space and, uh, and you're floating because gravity has now been, been overcome by the centrifugal force created by the vehicle going around Earth at that speed. So you've got this force called centrifugal force that's really tugging at you trying to break away from gravity so you go to the moon or somewhere and gravity pulling you back to earth and you're in the middle and and that gives you the sensation of floating or that actually lets you float and uh, that's an absolutely incredible feeling some of it's odd and and just and unnerving because you know your fluids float up in your body and seek equilibrium so whereas you you didn't have a lot of fluid in your head you end up with all this excess fluid in your head and it and your head hurts it's like a really bad head cold for the first day or two until you can pee away about two liters of fluid that you don't need in your body and and that's the way the body takes care of itself it just gets rid of all this excess fluid and and then your inner ear your balance mechanism quits working because it counts on a gravity vector and the gravity vector has been taken away and so you you have no idea what's up and down and, and, you know, your eyes kind of tell you, uh, but if your brain doesn't count, doesn't compute, some people get disoriented and, and, and that's what we call space adaptation syndrome. Some people just get mild stomach awareness. Some few people actually throw up. Um, that usually lasts a couple of days until your, until your balance mechanism gets used to being, being out of, out of whack, out of function. And then, uh, and then you get accustomed to operating that way. But the, the second sensation, other than the floating, is just the view out the window, as you said, and, and it is breathtaking. I mean, you know, your, you, your cutoff, your main engine cutoff where you begin to float is actually um, not your final orbit. You're in this, you're in this big egg-shaped orbit, uh, and the top of that orbit is about where you want your final orbit to be. So on our first flight, we ended up about 250 miles, so we were in a roughly a 250 mile by 90 mile egg shaped orbit. And we had to do one maneuver that was a, a burn of one of our big rocket engines to, to get ourselves in a circular orbit. So we, we did that in the first hour and a half on orbit and got into our circular orbit. And, but, but just looking out the window at the grandeur of this planet is unbelievable. And it, um, it's mesmerizing and I, you know, about 15 minutes of the flight, we were get, we were flying over the African continent, and um, and I thought it was an island when I first looked out the window, and then when I realized that that was my the place from which my ancestors had come, I literally cried. I mean, tears rolled down my cheek. First of all, because I I had lot, done a lot of study of African geography because knowing a little bit about you know my mother's side of the family, I knew that I had come from a 16 year old slave girl who was sold at auction in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And, uh, but I didn't know, we weren't exactly sure where she had come from, whether Sierra Leone or Ghana or Nigeria or what. So, so I, I learned African geography and I was gonna look down there and pick out these 
countries where she could have come from. And uh, not sure why I thought I would be able to do that, you know, why I thought I would see these lines on, 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 the, on the ground, but it, the startling revelation was there are no borders, no boundaries. You can't tell one country from the other. It all looks remarkably the same. And the beauty of going from the, the Mediterranean coast, you know, the, on the northernmost reaches of the continent of Africa, down through the Sahara Desert, across the equator and the jungles, and then down into the beautiful part of the southern tip of Africa, you know, which is South Africa and the and Cape and and the Cape, and then looking at, you know, kind of looking in a distance at Antarctica and all that kind of stuff. It's just breathtaking, and um, being able to see the atmosphere in its entirety, as thin as it is, this thin blue line going around the planet, um, and you're just taken aback. And so that was my, that was my opening round in space, uh, complete, uh, changes, radical changes in feeling and emotions and everything, uh, over the first 24 hours. Here's why you're an amazing interviewee. I'm telling you. So I make my little one sheet of all questions I want to ask you. And I'm like, Oh, after reading them, I wanted to make sure they weren't generic. Like what'd you miss most in space? And you just told, <laughs> no, but you just told me the story of your mother. <laughs> and the story of Ron the library, you completely <laughs> threw me out of whack. And this was – I'm fascinated right now. But is it cool if we end up with a few quick hits? You ready to roll? Sure, sure. <laughs> Best astronaut movie? Movie? Oh, The Martian, without a doubt. My fa- People say, what's your favorite space movie? The Martian because – and I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay, okay. If, if you read the book, which I did finally, Andy mm-hmm. Weir did the same thing the producers and directions of The Martian did. They wanted to make it as true to life as possible. So although we have not landed on Mars yet, they really spent a lot of time with all the NASA experts and the experts around the world and planetary science and Mars stuff. And so most of what you see and read about in that book and the movie is real. It's it's either been done, it's in the process of being done, or it's in the plans to do it. And so, you know, that's what I love about the movie. Coolest thing you've seen in space? Oh, the planet. No, without a doubt. It, okay. You know, it's it's the coolest. It's the most awesome. It is the most awe-inspiring. It's the most daunting. It's the most hopeful. Uh, it's the most depressing. Uh, it's all those things. And you may say, why is it depressing? Mm-hmm. Um, it's depressing because... You know, my very first day when I looked and I noticed that there were no borders and boundaries on the continent of Africa, and I realized how beautiful it was and how there was no sign of people down here uh, because you don't see buildings and you you see long linear features. So you can see roads, runways, you know, anything that's got a long linear feature to it. But you realize that, man, and you fly over the Middle East, which is a very violent part of the world, and it looks so peaceful. And it goes through your mind that something is not right. You know, we that's the way God intended it. That's the way God built it and put it together. And we are really screwing up some kind of way. So that's the that's the depressing part to realize that we have really screwed up creation and and we can do something about it, but we refuse to. So that's that's depressing and knowing that I'm a part of, you know, a, a species that has has tried its best to destroy this incredible planet on which we live, and yet there's still hope because you you look at it in all its grandeur and you know what's going on and and you know that that really good things are going on down there. You're in the White House with Obama. You're with President Obama, and you're talking about space, about NASA, what he wants you to do. What's the first conversation or something you said that wasn't about NASA? Because obviously you talked about normal stuff. What's the first thing he brings up? Oh, his his growing up in uh, in Hawaii. That was that started the conversation. He, like I said, he did he did most of the talking, and we talked in in twenty five minutes. Uh, I said very little about NASA because I only responded to questions, and um, and and I think of the questions I remember him asking me. I disagreed with him on one and. Uh, you know, it's about a National Space Council. I, I, I told him I, I just didn't think that would serve any useful purpose because it would be a layer between the, the NASA administrator. That's probably the only time I said NASA in the conversation. 
between the NASA administrator and the president that, you know, the administrator worked for the president. And uh, there were enough people already around the president to buffer it. He didn't need to put a whole big space council in the middle there. And he, he and I disagreed, but uh, long time, he didn't, long term, he didn't do it. So I was happy when I came up. When you're leaving or when you got there, did you take a picture with him? I did. And I, <laughs> it hangs on my, it hang, one, a copy of it hangs on my son's wall and, and a copy of it, we're, we're trying to sell our house, so it's down now, but, but a copy hangs on my wall. And it's, it's, um, it's a normal picture of two men with, a, with an observer sitting at a table uh, having a normal conversation. And, um, and it's, it's not my favorite Obama picture, my favorite one, because we, we believe it or not, in, in almost eight years, my wife and I never got a picture with, with the Obamas in a formal setting we took a picture with them when they toured the Kennedy Space Center. Um, I, you know, they came down to meet meet with Mark Kelly and and Congress former Congressman Gabriel Giffords. Uh, after Mark had a scrub, they were on the way back from the Gulf Coast, having visited with a bunch of hurricane victims, and and they they called and asked after the scrub if they could stop in. And I said, Mr. President, you know, you own all this stuff. Uh, you can do whatever you want to do. So. <laughs> So they brought Air Force One into into the Air Force skid strip right across from the Kennedy Space Center, and uh, Marine One brought them over by help. Brought the whole family and Mrs. Robinson, and and they what was what would have been about half an hour, an hour with us had they come down for the launch. Had we launched, uh, ended up being about three hours of his day, and uh, they were absolutely incredible. They met with the crew. They met with employees, hundreds of employees at the Kennedy Space Center. You know, shook hands, did autographs, did all kinds of stuff. They were all in jeans, and you know, and and they were they were really, they were very relaxed because, like I said, they had just come back from being down on the Gulf Coast after I forget what hurricane it was. The other ironic thing was um, he was on his way back to deliver the State of the Union, and uh, little did we know because he was so cool. Uh, he had already made the decision that, that he was going to take out Osama bin Laden. And so he was down meeting and laughing and scratching with Mark Kelly and his crew, greeting people from the Kennedy Space Center as if nothing was going on, went back and delivered the State of the Union. And, and then I don't know whether it was that night or what, but uh, either that night or the next night, we took out Osama bin Laden. How all, bad? Yeah, how bad ass is that? President. <laughs> That's Charles. That's a twelve-hour day for the man. <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for most of us, that's like a month. <laughs> hey, two more quick things because we're gonna yeah. do this live. Either I'll come to DC, you come to New York over some beers in a private bar. We're gonna do this live. Two more okay. quick, quick things. You have overcome challenges in every step of your journey. What advice do you give, not only to minorities but like all different races, gender, sexuality facing adversity? Because you've gone through it your whole life and you've overcome it. So, what advices do you give anybody? Uh, you know, my advice is really simple, and in fact, it may be too simple because it doesn't make any difference what age they are, what color they are. I, I give them three, three words, three phrases. One is study really hard. I tell them the same thing my parents told me, and, and I, I tell them study really hard. Um, and, and kids will sometimes say, well, what should I study if I want to be an astronaut? And I tell them, of, of course, math and science, but you've got to be able to speak and communicate well with people. So study the language arts. Make sure you understand your personal history, the history of your country. You know, no matter where you come from, because if you don't understand the history, you're destined to repeat it. We're learning that lesson in a hard way right now. Um, you know, try to learn a foreign language if you can, because usually the culture goes along with the language. And so you will learn about people who are different from you, which will be critical in your life. So study really, really hard. Work very hard. And by that, I mean, like practice uh, in the classroom. Just pretend you're on a on a football field or something, but but work hard at it so that you become the best in your field. And the final thing I tell them is don't be afraid of failure. That, um, you know, failure is okay. Uh, it's a part of life. And, and if they're like me, uh, every time they fail, they, they become stronger uh, and they grow from it. And then I, I kind of emphasize that to young girls and minorities. And I tell them, I said, you know, when I tell you not to be afraid of failure, I, I say, I mean, don't let anybody tell you what you cannot do. Um, don't don't try to don't try to justify why you happen to be in a room or why you happen to be in a job. Just do your job, 
and do the best you can do and people will eventually learn to respect you or you'll become their boss and they won't be there very long. So um, th those are the things I tell people. And I want to do this. You ready? Because now I, I want to talk more. I've already kept you 50 minutes and that's way longer than we were supposed to do it. I know you – next time we talk, I want to talk about your personal collection of memorabilia that you gave away because <laughs> I heard you gave away the coolest stuff in the world. So we're going to talk about that next time. <laughs> yeah, most and of it's gone. <laughs> I heard about that. You didn't give me anything, but we'll oh, talk about that I, off I, mic. I, I told me to get it out of here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I want to end part one of this, and we'll finish part two. And I know you're close to D.C. I come down there. I'm a big baseball guy, so I go down to that stadium all the time to watch good pitching matchups. Ah. You've over um, – I want to know this, and as the head of NASA, I know you're in all the know of all the juicy gossip. It's a silly question. I don't want to go into any detail, but do you think we're alone in this universe? Um, in terms of intelligent life, I don't know. I, I think there's a good chance that there is other intelligent life in the, and I'm glad you say the universe. We, we're pretty sure there's nothing else in the solar system. However, I will put this caveat, we do believe most of us who are serious students of science and stuff, most of us believe that we're going to find life in the form of microbes and, you know, single cell or very few cell organisms when we physically get to Mars. We've got a mission called OSIRIS-REx right now that's getting ready. It'll sometime next year, it'll take samples, bring back a, a little container with samples of soil from a, uh, an asteroid called Bennu um, that orbits our sun. And so... I think when we look at the samples that come back from Bennu and when we, either before we go to Mars or by the time we get there, we'll find that they're living organisms in the soil, if not in the, in the waters of, uh, you know, some of these places. But scientists believe that there is a good chance there's life in the oceans of a big moon of Jupiter called Europa, uh, another big moon called Enceladus, and a big moon of, of uh, Saturn called Titan. So there are at least three water moons in our solar system that the, 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 the scientific evidence says there's a good chance that there's microbial life in the oceans of those, those particular worlds. I want to, but, but not intelligent life, I don't think. But, but that doesn't say it's not somewhere else in the universe. I really mean this. I've had on 200 guests, athletes, authors, celebrities, every walk of life, and I'm going to say 90% of them, they're great interviews. They give great answers. For you opening up, getting emotional, talking about that story of Ron in the library, almost getting <laughs> arrested, but yet changing your life and maybe changing, you know, courses of history, your mother being a slave and getting pregnant at 16. For opening up, that was just – it shows your character, your class. You are a true American hero, and this was an honor to me. And I mean this. I want to do a part two of this down live over a few drinks and talk about this memorabilia. <laughs> great, great, Mike. I, I look forward to it. I, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person, and thanks very much for taking the time. My friend, thank you so much.